0: There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Hello, and welcome back to the One House Podcast, The Crossroads Series, where we discuss the critical moments that shape the lives and careers of Haas alumni. I'm your host, Sophie Hoyt, and on today's show, we'll be talking to Scott Kucharik. He's the CEO and co-founder of Ocho Candy, which may just be some of the best chocolate I've ever had. But Scott didn't always plan to break into the candy business. After finishing undergrad, he joined the Navy, and then went to Haas and became the co-founder of Zip Realty before landing at Ocho. And that's something you're going to notice with Scott. He always has a plan, but that plan is always subject to change. So, you may be wondering, how did Scott find himself in the candy business? Well, through his kids, sort of. You see, his partner, Dennis Ring, who's the creator of the 365 line at Whole Foods, approached him on the schoolyard. Their kids went to school together.
1: He said, "Hey, I have an organic candy bar. I'd like you to try it." And my first thought was, "Oh my God! This is 2005, mind you. It's like organic candy bar. That sounds horrible. I'm like, why do I want to eat that?" But I knew he was a food snob, and he is a food snob. And also, I was in the military before business school as a naval aviator, so I got used to just eating food, any food. So I was like, "How bad can it be? It's candy." And so I opened up a little silver foil wrapper. And inside was like an organic Snickers. And it was damn good. This was made with great organic butter, organic chocolate. It had a nice smooth finish. The nuts were fresh and vibrant. The caramel melted in your mouth. You had a caramel finish. And the nougat had a hint of peanut butter and kind of a little softer than taffy. So the entire mouthfeel and experience was shocking. Once you tasted the bar, there was no doubt. Like This was better. Wasn't up for debate. I said, wait, this is good. And he said, yeah, it goes, there's going to be a market for this one day.
0: And he was right. And Scott was right to believe him. I mean, how many of us are willing to pay a few extra bucks to spring for organic grade food? I know I am. And if it can taste good, then I'm sold. And so was Scott. But for Scott, before there was Ocho, there was Zip Realty. And before Zip Realty, there was Haas. And before Haas, there was the Navy.
1: I'd always wanted to learn how to fly. I almost joined the Air Force Academy out of high school, but then I realized if something went wrong when I was in training, if I went to the Air Force Academy, I would still have to be in the Air Force for five years and I wouldn't get to fly.
0: In college at Cal, Scott got a bioengineering degree.
1: Bioengineering is not the behemoth it is now with a big building. It was a very small engineering stuck with petroleum engineering and a bunch of other majors they didn't know what to do with. I just realized it wasn't a career... I wasn't passionate about it like some people were. So essentially, I walked to a recruiting station in Oakland, and there they have Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy on each floor. I got in the elevator, and I said, well, if I want to learn to fly, where is it the hardest to fly? Well, it sounds like it's the hardest to land on a ship. Okay, that's a winner. So I just pressed that floor, walked in, a recruiter asked me what I was doing, and I explained who I was and what I was interested in. And then that afternoon... He was like, can you take a bunch of tests?
0: Now, these tests were on sailing and flying, which makes sense for naval aviation. But Scott had never sailed a boat or been on a plane, let alone flown one. He asked the recruiter if he should go home, study, and come back some other time.
1: He goes, oh, if you don't know, just answer. There's a choice that says you don't know. It's fine. Well, that guy was an idiot. That was not fine. That's a wrong answer. So, so essentially, I barely passed that test. And there was another test that was really weird.
0: It was a visual test. Just look at the pictures of a cockpit and tell the recruiter which direction you were flying. Easy? Well, sort of.
1: They said, okay, let's do the practice one. Question one, I looked at the picture and I said, well, this is clear. I'm going down to the left. So I marked that. And I went to question two and I was like, down to the right. And then the guy comes back and goes, okay, the answers were up and to the left and up to the right. That's completely the opposite of what I thought. Then I said, wait, it doesn't matter what I think. Whatever I'm thinking right now is completely opposite of what the answer is. So just answer the opposite. I nailed that test.
0: And just like that, Scott was off to Pensacola, Florida for training. But there would be one more test. One you can't really prepare for.
1: When I went through training, it turns out I have really, really very bad car motion sickness, and it doesn't get better in a plane. And once you start having problems, if you're doing well and everything else, they send you off to a special extra one week of training called Spin and Puke. And so essentially, they have all these gadgets. And devices like a carnival gone mad, where they have these little cylinders that spin you all sorts of different ways, and where you have to move gauges and press buttons, and they see if you can actually adapt and stop throwing up all the time. And if you get through it, you get to stay, and if you don't, you're kicked out. And so my inner air got adjusted, I guess, and then I was fine to continue on.
0: And what was it like the first time you were in control of the plane?
1: So, right away, you're in control in the first flight. I just remember it went way faster than I thought. It was exhilarating, frightening, challenging, exhausting, and I was still getting very fatigued um, and nauseous.
0: And as time went on, Scott got really good at his job, but there was something missing.
1: I did about six or seven years in my squadron. I was doing very well. They expected me to be a lifer, Uh, but I just always realized that. I wanted to see my family and being in the military was not conducive to a good family life so i applied to business school the first year i applied i was on a wait list and i didn't get in the second year i got on the wait list again but due to some fortune a person i knew in the military a good friend of mine who was a marine cobra pilot um It turned out his dad had been following my progress and was an alumni at Haas School of Business. And he was a little surprised I didn't get in because I had solid MCATs and really good grades.
0: This friend's father knew Scott was a solid candidate for the Haas program. And after looking into their admissions policies, he learned that at that time, in a class of 240, Haas was only admitting on average zero to two military personnel. For reference, Stanford was admitting upwards of 10 per class. Those numbers have since gotten a lot better. Recently, Scott was talking to a current Haas MBA candidate, an Air Force guy, as Scott says.
1: I said, well, how many military people in your class now expecting him to say like three or four? And he said there's something like 20. I said, wow, that is a big change.
0: In some ways, Scott had to walk so this Air Force guy could fly, so to speak. So after Scott got accepted to Haas, he got to work. The first day of school is always scary, no matter how old you get. It's orientation week at Haas, icebreakers and team-building activities abound.
1: So there's about 150 people who don't know each other, a million about, and a school bus pulls up. And so a group of people go on the school bus, and of course everyone sits in the window seat. So after every single window seat is taken, then all other people walk down the aisle, and it literally is grade school. Everyone's looking like, oh, who's going to sit next to me? Oh man, I don't know if I like that person.
0: And there, sitting in the window seat, was Juan Meany, Scott's future business partner. They just hit it off. And in time, they decided to start a business together. And after four evolutions of startups, Zip Realty was born. While still at Haas, Scott and Juan started to put all of their energy into building their company.
1: In our last semester, all our classes, every project done was for the company. Uh, Allow consumers to search for homes. We'd heard from them saying they didn't like walking to an office and being shown a book. Then we talked to agents, and agents were complaining that they had a hard time finding customers. And there's a lot of competition so we felt it could be reimagined with technology that if you provided the information with consumers and allowed them to control some of the process that you could give them a rebate and that if agents didn't have to look for customers they'd be willing to use your technology to just get the customers you gave them and close them and they'd work on a lower commission and if we gave them all a little piece of the company then the ownership you know partnership would be formed in a healthy way where everyone was working together and that's what Realty was supposed to be it's this new idea of a real estate brokerage that empowered all parties, especially consumers. And it, it became that. It was by far the first revolutionary. The reason anyone can go online today and search homes on any website is because our company spent millions of dollars and lots of programmers going from MLS to MLS, getting data feeds and organizing them and pushing our competitors, even Realtor.com. We got better data than Realtor.com in the early days. We just were insane about getting that data there. And so we just built this robust website that offered people an opportunity to search, get paired with an agent, uh, and then work in a more technologically friendly way with more transparency about paperwork and costs. And they got a rebate. We gave tens and tens of millions of dollars of rebates back to customers. So it spawned a whole revolution in in the industry, but it was hard fought. We were very much fought for years.
0: One of the big problems they were trying to fix with Zip Realty was customer experience. In real estate, there's an agent on each side one representing the buyer and the other, the seller. Scott describes a bevy of issues they were trying to undo, ranging from bad business practices and mild inconveniences to blatant corruption.
1: If they wanted to, they would just not give back to your agents or take a long time or give bad information or tell their sellers, oh, it just so happens another agent in my office has a buyer who would just love to buy your home. So even though it's not the top price, it's a sure deal because we'll just close it in-house and it'll be much faster for you.
0: But their battle to break into the real estate market was just beginning and was already very much uphill. Zip Realty was getting its start in 1999 while the real estate industry was still categorically analog. But to many, what Zip Realty saw as the future was a risk. At industry events, Scott was a self-described pariah. No one even wanted to be caught talking to him. When he walked into the crowded lobbies, the sea of bodies would part to avoid him.
1: Oh no, there's that Zip guy. They're coming to destroy our industry, cut our commissions, put us out of business.
0: Throughout our interview, I kept thinking about the Greek myth of Cassandra, a priestess of Apollo cursed with the gift of true prophecy that goes unbelieved. To me, Scott seemed like a kind of Cassandra, whose predictions of a digital tomorrow fell on deaf ears.
1: That describes every fundraising pitch I had besides like 10. <laughs> I mean, essentially, when we would do these pitches, we had an internal moniker, we call it stormy clouds or sunny days. And within like two minutes of talking to someone, we just looking at each other like stormy clouds, let's just muddle through this thing, but it's over. And then you just got resigned to the fact that they didn't see it. but people got it, got it immediately, they're the sunny days. And they just... Click. So my motto was, we're going to have to talk to 100 people and maybe we'll find one person that'll find us. We really were fortunate that the executive officer of the California Association of Realtors was very forward-thinking. And right away, he knew that this was the future because he was an economist by trade. And so he started working with us.
0: With time, as Scott did more panels and presentations, the industry warmed up a bit. They realized he wasn't the boogeyman they had painted him to be. And that technology wasn't going anywhere. The executive officer that Scott mentioned would set up covert meetings between Scott and Juan and local brokerages. It was all very hush-hush.
1: And what they were curious about is they knew they needed to incorporate technology, they just didn't know how. And I was just curious about how they'd run their family business for maybe 30, 40, 50 years, had a thousand agents been really successful. If this is supposed to be so unsophisticated as, you know, Silicon Valley said they were then how the heck do they just keep making more money and keep growing? And I came to realize that they really, really were very sophisticated business people that knew how to run their business. And the forward-thinking ones knew this was going to change. And then they realized that we really were in a partnership. We weren't worried about putting any one brokerage out of business. And as more technology startups came in doing different stuff, then everyone started realizing, oh, wait, this is not going away.
0: And just as quickly as the real estate industry was changing, so was Zip Realty. Initially, Scott and Juan got funding the week before they graduated from Haas, a first for the business school. From there, they raised another 1.5 million in about three months, before meeting with Bob Kegel from Benchmark Capital. He liked what he saw and led a $10 million round. And they just kept growing, rapidly expanding their team from 30 people to a few hundred.
1: Pretty much hired all those people.
0: Then to 10 cities across the country.
1: Because that's what Yahoo wanted do an online partnership with us to you know, make it worthwhile for them.
0: And in 2004, they went public. A victory well earned. Scott's advice? Believe in the thing you're selling.
1: When you clearly know where the future is going, you become like a zealot. I would just use the number, the law of large numbers. Someone in this darn metro area has the money and believes in what I'm saying. I just have to find them. So I'm just going to have to network, 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 go through a lot of bad meetings. Even then, you never know. At the end, always ask if we should talk to somebody else. And then occasionally you get a hit where it's positive. And so you start building up a database of people who are supportive and get it. You know, of course, you always hear about the people who like did two pitches and got $50 million, right? Because those people will talk about it. You know, it's a law of positive reinforcement the other 900 people who pitched a hundred times and didn't get anything, don't say anything. They're not at their cocktail party or out on the weekend with their friends going, wow, I just went through my hundred pitch and my business is going nowhere. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm moving back from my parents. I'm out of money. But you know, whatever, right? That's kept quiet. So essentially you can't take what you're hearing sometimes, but we just knew the further we got into this, this was where it was going. It was just so clear. It's like reading a book.
0: So while all of this growth and change was really exciting, some of it came at a cost.
1: So after Zip Realty went public, one thing became clear that the CEO that was brought on was not a good fit for the culture. And that's something I learned from the military, that no matter what business you're in, you're in people. You know, one thing I saw in the military is that their salary didn't matter because everyone knew what everyone's salary was. And if they believed in the leadership and the vision, then it didn't matter what they got paid, they were going to do it. So I always felt that compensation to a point was not the main driver of that. Believing that you made a difference and that you had impact was very valuable. And that creating a culture that celebrated the people and that was important.
0: Scott and Juan had spent years building a culture that prized the people of Zip Realty, only to have their new CEO tear it all down seemingly overnight. Scott opted to work alongside other employees on the floor, sharing insights and learning from his colleagues, while the new CEO had two separate offices away from everyone else, topped off with what Scott calls an I love me wall, which I can only imagine to be like a shrine to self and former glories. Not bad, just different. Very different.
1: I just didn't like it, and it was a struggle. My co-founder already left a year or two before he figured out that the CEO was not right earlier. And then my wife one day told me very clearly, she's like, you know, you're in love with the company that doesn't exist anymore. And you, you can't stop what's going on there. And she was right. So then I just realized after a lot of tears and sadness, I'm like I have to leave. It was my baby. It
0: was time to pivot. And that's just what Scott did, over and over until he found a good fit. First, he worked as a general manager for Prudential, but got out around the time of the real estate downturn. Then he 180'd, researching how to bring a women's pro soccer team to the Bay Area. And then, shockingly, consulting. I know what you're thinking. Consulting isn't a shocking pivot. But for Scott, it kind of is. You see, Scott is anti-consulting. In fact, he's kind of known for it.
1: I've been known in my class for railing on consulting, so as a profession that just prescribes a solution and doesn't have to deal with the actual execution or ramifications of how that solution might turn out with real people in the real world.
0: So, what could possibly bring him to the dark side? In the end, he was told it would only be a three-month stint, writing a business plan for a friend who had helped him out in the past. His friend Joel even sweetened the deal with some high level negotiating.
1: Joel is pretty persuasive with the kind of negotiation tactic of, yeah, we can just name your price on how much we need to pay you. Name your price is a very strong negotiating technique, by the way, for all you employers out there who are reticent. So I picked a price that I thought was ridiculously high, but not insulting. Turned out later when I saw the budget, I was $5,000 under what I could have asked for, but I was at peace with that. And so he probably thought he had a win, like any good negotiation. I thought I had a win, and he thought he had a win. And then that three months kept getting extended every three months until I built a statewide MLS. we scratch with, you up being three other people. That was crazy town. And then we ended up merging with the third biggest one in the state and offloading it. And then both Joel and I had some champagne and said, thank God.
0: And after that, Scott walked away. We're now in 2010, five years after where our story began. On the schoolyard with Dennis and his dubious organic candy. Scott tells me that in the background, through his various pivots from his final stint at Zip Realty to his tryst with consulting, Dennis had continued to pitch this business to him. And after consulting...
1: Doing a candy bar company started sounding real good. I said, Dennis, let's do this thing. I started looking into it more from a consumer perspective, and I had two daughters, and I looked at my pantry and I saw Halloween candy from a year or two years ago, still somewhat edible by FDA standards. I was thinking, my God, it's 2010. Can't you make really clean, better tasting candy? Dennis is right. This is wrong. Why why is this happening? Then I got to know there's an oligopoly in candy. Mars and Hershey's control essentially at that time, 85% of the U.S. market. And when you have an oligopoly, what you get is no innovation. This is the same thing as it was in the multiple listening service world. There's only four providers of the technology. And so I got very familiar with seeing what an oligopoly does to innovation and customer service. And let me tell you, it's not good because they don't need to. And so I was thinking, this this seems like we should be making better candy. I mean, it's not going to change the world, but people enjoy candy. It really does make them happy, and they should be able to enjoy it and not have weird stuff in it. So let's figure out how this is. This will be kind of an adventure of learning and curiosity.
0: And then came the fun, the taste tests. Scott was coaching his daughter's soccer team, and all the girls started making requests.
1: I remember... We ended up doing, uh, one of our players was eager for us to do an entire bar just filled with caramel. And I said, well, if we guys do well enough in this tournament, I'll hand make some. I just think it's too much caramel in it.
0: So, of course, the girls started playing better than ever, and the candy kept flowing. A full caramel bar? Way too much. But a mini? Now that's just right.
1: There's people, you know, they would talk about flavors they liked, they didn't like, why don't you put this in? So that part of it is really... Neat, right? Everyone has to say about candy because it's such an emotional part of most people's lives. So it's easily accessible and easily open to feedback and opinions. right on the spot.
0: Now, in the beginning, everything was handmade. One might call it rustic, but Scott had some choice words.
1: Janky, dented, wrapped poorly. Oh, you'd be fired here now if you even remotely tried to pass in those bars off.
0: But Whole Foods took them. Remember, Dennis is the mind behind the 365 line. And while it was validating to be taken on by such a large chain, it wasn't enough for Scott.
1: I said, Dennis, we'll know this works when people we don't know, we've never met, who have no idea who we are, show up into a store and buy the candy. If that happens, then we might be on the sample.
0: And they were. The in-store demos were going well, the sales were strong, even without promotions, and suddenly, it became difficult to keep up with the orders because they were all handmade.
1: So that's when I said, Dennis, I think I think we're on to something here.
0: Granted, there were some elements working in their favor. Justin's peanut butter cups had become a popular alternative in the candy market and were a clear point of reference for
1: their consumers. So they opened a lot of doors for us. We would say, hey, we're kind of like Justin's except we do all these bars, not the cups. We're not going to do cups. And we have a peanut butter bar, which is different than the cup because it has a lot more peanut butter ratio to chocolate.
0: But that's not all they do. There's the aforementioned caramel minis, A caramel and peanut butter bar, coconut, peppermint, PB&J, and plenty of others are in the works. And the reason they're so good, other than the ingredients, might have something to do with their recipe testing system. Remember Twilight? The steamy teen vampire saga that I most definitely read cover to cover. Anyway, what does an organic candy company have in common with Twilight? The teams. You remember Team Edward vs. Team Jacob? It's like that at Ocho, but with candy flavors.
1: I was captain of Team PB, so the captain was the most senior person in the company who that was their favorite bar. And the reason we picked up those teams was because if we needed to modify the recipe at all, or we thought we did, the only people were allowed to prove it, we didn't do taste panels or whatever, were the, all the members of the team of that flavor. So essentially, they had the final say because they were the most passionate about the bar and represented all the people who might be buying it. So. For teen peanut butter, what I loved about it against a cup, the cup had too much chocolate and not enough peanut butter. And the peanut butter, a lot of times, unfortunately, was dry and chalky. So for our bar, you had a lot of peanut butter in the middle. It was a little gooier and softer, so you bite through the hard shell. But in the middle, you'd have delicious, creamy peanut butter that barely amended. We used cane sugar that had large grains, and so when you're eating it, There is a little, like, gravelly finish to it that is insanely satisfying. And people noticed it right away.
0: Okay, so after hearing that, do you want to take a guess at what their bestseller is? That's right, you guessed it. Coconut. Because that makes sense. If you couldn't tell, I too am Team PMP. But apparently, according to the sales numbers, Coconut's where it's at over at Ocho. In all seriousness though, coconut is very good and I do recommend it.
1: No more needs to be said. Team coconut, dominating the universe.
0: But how did Ocho go from a homegrown operation to the fully fledged factory it is today? Well, after outgrowing a small space in Folsom, they moved to a 5,000 square foot space in Oakland with 52 employees working around the clock to turn out handmade candy. But they still had to turn down orders.
1: We can only make about 12,000 bars a day on a good day which seems like a lot, except when Target calls, and they want a lot of bars, and you just can't make it. So we spent that same time going around trying to find if there was somebody who could co-manufacture, um, because then you don't have to put the money out for the equipment.
0: And in meeting after meeting, every potential co-manufacturer had to turn
1: them away. And we explained the process of how they're handmade and molds. <laughs> like, oh, that explains it. We we can't do that because in the confection world, you're either doing molding, which is like tablet bars with a nice shiny, glossy outside shell in the center. Or you're doing extruded, which is most candy bars, which is you make the center centers firmer, gets cut to size and goes under a chocolate waterfall. So you have a thin layer of chocolate, like a Snickers, and then a firm center. What we were doing was completely unprecedented. We were making a molded bar that looked like an extruded bar. So we take timbered chocolate and pour it in a mold like a canoe, the tops and the sides, and then put the center in and then put the bottom on and pop it out in the mold. And that's why you get that nice, glossy, shiny top. And so instead of going through a thin layer of chocolate and then getting a firm center, when you ate an Ocho candy bar, you crack through a thick layer of organic fair trade chocolate and get a creamy center because we didn't have to amend the center to hold its shape because the shell held the shape.
0: It didn't make sense to change the product to fit the manufacturers because their soft fillings were the reason people loved Ocho. So Scott and Dennis had to figure out how to make the manufacturer fit
1: their bars. One manufacturer had some equipment, two different types of equipment that weren't normally put together that we felt might be able to be modified to work. And we invited their sales, head of world sales and U.S. sales, to our place in Oakland because we're pretty serious. And so they said, sure, which surprised us. And then they flew out, but they didn't tell us they brought the CEO and namesake of the company with them. So we walked around through the plant. It didn't take long; it's tiny. The front of it was people filling centers like piping or hand roll coconut little snakes and press it in, uh, and then other people bottoming it and banging them out, running through a wrap machine. And then around the back was where the centers were being made. And we had little IKEA desks with all the sitting with our computers with our hair nets and stuff. And our computers getting bombarded by powdered sugar and he looked at me he goes never in my life have i seen something so insane and so genius at the same time only in america he goes our company will figure out how to make our equipment replicate what you're doing here because this is the best confection i've had in 20 years and i've built over 800 plants
0: and they did through much trial and error they adjusted and tweaked the machines and the process until it hit the sweet spot but once it did Ocho was able to crank out thousands of perfect bars in half the time, except for one, peanut butter. Something wasn't quite right with the texture in the new system, and instead of compromising the product or changing the recipe, Team PB opted to have 15 workers continue to make those by hand until they could get the machines to make them perfectly.
1: And that was the moment where I'm proud of our company. Even though we were running out of money, and we were, we would go under before we'd allow one product out the door that didn't meet the Ocho standard.
0: And that's one of the things that makes Ocho special, the commitment to the product. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Scott is the captain of Team PB, the most fickle filling. Listening to him talk about his life, I noticed a trend. At every stage of his career, Scott sought out the most challenging endeavors and rose to the occasion. Whether it be wanting to land planes on ships, trying to predict the future of technology and real estate, or figuring out how to standardize an unprecedented method of stuffing a candy bar full of peanut butter. Scott's there, and he's committed because his work's not done.
1: I'm not worried about failure. That's just going to happen. That's learning. If it totally tanks, that's okay. You still learn. You're still doing experience. I mean, your life is about experiences, not stuff you get. So I'm not driven by that, I guess. We're more doing something that looks interesting, has value, and there's a calling to it, I get a certainty. So that's either insanity or good. You know, if it works out, it's good. If it isn't, you're a crazy person. So when I pivot over to do it, there's no looking back. There's no regrets. I'm just moving forward, optimizing. And, you know, if it's four years from now, I can go in any store and see... People have a choice for better tasting, cleaner candy that's focused on what's inside count, sustainability for workers, for the planet. That's something that's important to me for like my values and purpose in life. Right? So then that makes it worth doing.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Hoss Podcast, The Crossroads Series. And a special thanks to Scott Kuchrick for sharing his story with me. If you want to try Ocho Candy for yourself, and I'm sure you do, go to OchoCandy.com. That's O-C-H-O-Candy.com to use their store locator to find their products near you. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to subscribe to One Hoss wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. You can also check out more of our content on our website at hoss.fm, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears!